Hello everyone, my name is Ryan and you're listening to The Vegan Report. If you're vegan for the animals and you care to do more for animal rights, but you're not sure where to start, then this podcast is for you. Every week, discover passionate, thought-provoking and inspiring animal rights leaders from all walks of life who will inspire you to take action and help you find your voice, your own special contribution to the animal rights movement. Today, I have with me Galen, who is a volunteer for Anonymous for the Voiceless. Now, if you're vegan, you must know about them. They always wear those distinctive V for Vendetta masks, you know, from that movie with Natalie Portman. And if you visit their website, and the link is in the description, you're welcomed with a short but powerful statement. End human supremacy. Then the mission statement reads as follows. Anonymous for the Voiceless is an animal rights organization specializing in edifying the public on the streets with cubes of truths and fostering highly effective activism groups worldwide. We hold an abolitionist stance against all forms of non-human animal exploitation and promote a clear and direct animal rights message. Galen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Ryan. So the mission statement is very clear, but I still have many questions. Why do you have to be anonymous and wear those masks? It seems a bit random to me. What is a cube of truth? What is your activism strategy? So here is a bundle of questions for you. Well, I wouldn't read too much into that. Uh, We don't actually have to be anonymous. Nobody's hiding their identity or anything like that. Uh, The masks, at the end of the day, it's simply a uniform and a way to attract attention, I suppose. Try to make the people who are standing inside of the cube holding the TVs look as much as or as much like statues as possible. The, uh, the idea is to first stand out, attract the attention with the, the black attire and the white mask, and also to keep people's focus on the, uh, on the TVs. Uh, I suppose there's some psychological impact when somebody's wearing a mask, you don't feel like you have to be looking at them in the eyes. You're, you'll, you'll be more focused on, on what's on the screens. Uh, so that's, that's the purpose of the masks. Uh, why they chose Anonymous for the Voiceless, I actually couldn't really say. I don't know why uh, they chose that name, but I think it's, uh, it sounds good. And of course, they could be uh, trying to piggyback off a little bit about the much bigger, uh, you, you know, that uh, big anonymous uh, hacking hacker group. They aren't part of that. It's a completely separate uh, uh, group, but uh, I'm sure that uh, it's a good way to uh, attract attention with that uh, with that look. And you you went over it quickly, but so a cube of truth is a bunch of people holding uh, TVs with uh, footage of what's happening inside the slaughterhouse. Is that a good? summary of uh, what is a cube of truth? Yep, that's a pretty good summary. So we show mostly what's happening inside slaughterhouses, uh, but also what's happening uh, on farms, uh, including fur farms, uh, uh, farms for down and wool and everything like this. So it it covers all the industries. It covers uh, meats, dairy, eggs, uh, and clothing. So fur, leather, down, etc., uh, and and all aspects of it, from 
from from the slaughter to to all the little details about what happens that people have no clue about um, industries that people think are uh, not as bad for example uh, wool people think that the sheep are just shaved and some people think we're even doing the sheep a favor because they grow too much wool you know of course they've been genetically bred to do that it's not what a natural sheep uh, is like and so it goes into actually all the dirty little details uh, of, the, of those industries and there's a for example uh, there's a practice called musling i'm not sure if i'm pronouncing it correctly where basically uh, the farmer will hook the sheep up to a, a rack so that they're immobile they will cut the skin off uh, around their butts and the idea is so that uh, their feces don't get stuck in their excess fur but they're essentially being skin uh, alive and it's just a common practice in the wool industry that people have no idea about so we uh, we show them that and uh, that's that's basically a, the idea we just uh, the cube of truth is is people standing in a square showing holding a window into the industry basically that uh, they wouldn't otherwise uh, be able to see through and who chooses the footage uh is it something part of like the global organization <laughs> and you just you have a bank of footage or um is it the volunteers that hold the tvs that choose the footage it's centralized so it's uh uh, it's the uh, the um, founders of AV. They're based in Australia. Uh, started there. I forget when, uh, but it's it's quite centrally uh, uh, run, I would say, and for good reason. Um, <clears throat> it's not that they want to have you know power and control or anything like that. It's that they want it to be uniform. Uh, so one big unified movement that is recognizable. So someone sees them in Germany. And then they see the same people in Canada. They'll know it's the same group, and it's uh, it it really uh, shows how big of a movement uh, it really is. <clears throat> so it's for that purpose, and for that purpose as well, all the footage is also standard to answer your question. And then, if I remember correctly, there is the the cube of truth, so the wall of footage, and then there is a person meeting with the people who decide to stop and look at the footage. So what's the role of that person? So what we do is when when a bystander, like a member of the public comes across, uh, if they're, walk, they're walking by, we don't solicit. We will wait for them to stop on their own. So we know that they're interested. We wait for them to watch the footage for, let's say, 10 to 20 seconds. And if they look like they are interested, uh, and curious about it, then somebody from our group will go up and speak to them. And these people who are speaking to the members of the public, they're not wearing a mask. It's only the people in the in the holding the TVs who are wearing the masks. So the people, who, uh, the person who goes up to speak to them, their role is going to be to basically ask them a series of questions. First, maybe explain a bit about the footage that they're seeing. But essentially, sorry, essentially, it's to walk them through a series of questions using something that called the Socratic method. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yes. Uh, yeah. So ba basic questions uh, to lead them to their own conclusion. So for example, uh, you know, it would be more nuanced than this, but you know, are you against animal cruelty? Person's going to obviously say yes, if they're a, a rational, sane person. Uh, so then the next question would be, you know, do you, do you think that this looks like cruelty, what you're seeing on the screen? Yes, of course it is. Do you think that we need 
animal products to be healthy and survive in today's world. Most people, thankfully, now know that we don't need it. So usually they say, no, I, I know that we don't need to have to eat animal products to be healthy. And then so you, you would follow up with something like, so if you're against animal cruelty and you know that this industry is full of animal cruelty and you agree that we don't need it to survive, how do we justify doing this uh, to animals? And so quite often uh, people will actually concede and agree. Well, and they'll say, oh, well, I guess we can't justify it to them. You, you know, you'll talk a bit more about it. The conversations are a lot longer than that, but that's the basic idea. That's amazing because uh, that's philosophy from antiquity. That's what you had uh, uh, in ancient Greece. You had philosophers in the streets and then they would you know, spread the word about what they believe in. And if people were convinced, uh, then they were converted. That's where the word uh, conversion came from. And they would follow the philosophy of that philosopher. That's amazing that you get your inspiration from that tradition. Uh, is there any training to to join uh, Anonymous for the Voiceless? I guess holding the TV doesn't require much training, but for the person who has to speak with uh, the public, uh, do you have like a special class or something? Uh, there are special classes sometimes held uh, by, by people, but it's not a routine thing. It's kind of just as demand comes up. Uh, but we don't require people to take training or anything like that. Uh, but we do. what we do ask them to do is if a new person joins our group as a volunteer and they want to do outreach to the public uh, like that, we ask them to come to three cubes first uh, and shadow other people's conversations. So just kind of stand in the background, listen to how we talk to them, absorb it, and uh, just understand uh, the process that we use. Uh, and then we also ask them to go to you know YouTube and watch videos of people like Joy Carbstrong or Earthling Ed. There's a there's a there's a few other uh, uh, bigger names who have a lot of videos who who use the exact same approach. Uh, and just by listening to those videos and shadowing uh, people at our events, people will get the hang of it, and they'll that will be enough. But sometimes people do request more specific training and, and some people in the community will host training and go into more detail, you know. Uh, so it can happen if people request it. I, I prefer the, the, you know, the former method, the, the one you, you described. I think it's amazing. I'm against, you know, I don't like the, the model of um, lecture. You know, you have to sit and listen to someone. But having a more practical, hands-on approach on... Um, training yourself to ask those questions and to be a member of the group, that's the best way to learn. And that's also mm. the most, you know, most pleasant way to learn. So, yeah, yeah, I agree. So I'm very curious, Galen, how, what has been your vegan journey so far and how did you find yourself volunteering for uh, Anonymous for the Voiceless? Well, it was a long one, I guess. I, the, the idea sort of entered my head, I suppose, when I was pretty young, maybe in my early teens, for example, and my parents always had dogs and I loved those dogs and I would cuddle with them and, and spoil them and treat them really well. And 
for that reason, I thought I was being very kind to animals, like I was a, a friend uh, to the animal world. And I, I prided myself on that. And then I would go sit down later that day for dinner, and my parents would put a, a chicken breast or steak in front of me, and I would happily eat it. But then soon I would start thinking, uh, well, <clears throat> am I like full of shit, basically? Because I, I, I say I love animals and I cuddled my dogs. You know, I, I spoil these, these two animals here who I know are sentient and can feel fear and pain. And so I treat them well for that reason. But then I go home, I sit down later that day and I eat the corpse uh, of a different animal every single day, multiple times a day, who I, you know, I know for sure they're also sentient, just like my dogs who can feel fear and pain. So how does that make sense? How can I say that I'm a friend to the animal world when I spoil these two dogs, but then, you know, hundreds of animals a year, I'm willingly having slaughtered and mistreated for my uh, own pleasure. Uh, I wrestled with that idea for many, many years uh, before I actually acted on it. And I think I was, I think it was around when I was 26 or 27 that I actually finally said, uh, you know, that that's it. After many, many years of trying to justify it, trying to find a reason not to change, uh, eventually I just said, no, that's, it's it's ridiculous. I have to do something. And so that that day when I had that, epiphany uh i just said okay i'm not going to have any meat today i'll see how it goes so i didn't have meat that day next day i uh, didn't have meat and then before i knew it it was a week i didn't have meat and oh, i feel fine so i'll try another week and then another week and and th that was it and i never looked back and so that was 10 years ago now and of course you know i'm saying meats because at first i went vegetarian like like so many people because i had no clue about what was happening in the in the dairy and egg industry I thought, you know, the basic thought, well, they're not being killed, so it's not a problem. Um, and then maybe three or four years after going vegetarian, a co-worker who was uh, vegan asked me to go watch a video from uh, Gary Yarovsky, who I'm sure you're you're familiar with. Uh, and I think it's on the internet, it's called the, the best speech you'll ever hear or something like that. So I watched that and then he kind of called out vegetarians. Uh, for being total hypocrites and luckily i'm i'm rational so i didn't get defensive about it uh and, and i listened and then thought about it and then looked into it a, a bit and i was like yeah okay he's he's completely right to find if i'm vegetarian because i'm against animal cruelty obviously uh, i have to be vegan uh, as well otherwise it doesn't make any sense uh, so that's how uh, that's how i went uh, vegan um, that's interesting because he has a very confrontational approach and that's also the approach of Anonymous for the Voiceless. I was on the fence for, for a time on that approach. I was thinking maybe we should not be offensive toward people. Maybe we should not you know, push, push them into this lifestyle or just not be confrontational. But I'm changing my mind. So I'm wondering, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, yes, yes, I do. I would say Anonymous for the Voices is is not uh, so much confrontational as it is just brutally honest. And so we do end up, like we do end up in confrontational uh, situations sometimes, that's for sure. Uh, like people will just get so 
offended and defensive that we're implying that they are abusing animals because you know most people think of themselves as being against animal cruelty and that they would never hurt uh, you know they wouldn't they wouldn't hurt a fly and then here we are telling them to their face that they are uh, total hypocrites and that they support animal abuse uh, and torture every single day of their life multiple times a day and and gladly do it so it it most people we appeal to people's rationality and a lot of people are rational about it and appreciate the honesty but you know sometimes people uh do get triggered by it and it ends up being uh, confrontational but i think the confrontation is good uh, i'm not in any way opposed to it because i think it's uh, something that elicits such a strong uh, defensive reaction will stick with that person and i'm hoping that after I have a confrontational uh, experience like that, that the person, after they calm down, they will try, they will reflect on it and try to uh, reconcile their values with their actions uh, to try to uh, make themselves feel better and, and you know, maybe to try to, to prove that we were wrong or something. And in the process of trying to do that, when they're in a more calm situation, they'll realize that, oh, maybe we are actually right. And because when you think about it, it's quite obvious. You know, obviously, abuse and torture is is uh, prevalent in the animal agriculture industry. If you're supporting that industry, then you're supporting that, uh, you know, that treatment towards animals. So there's not really any way around it. Uh, there are other uh, actions that I participate in outside of Anonymous for the Voiceless, all of which are much more uh, confrontational as well. But uh, again, I, I support that. Like I used to... Uh, I think I started out like you as well. Like I was against the confrontational uh, side of it, but I think in any social justice movement, uh, confrontation is uh, is going to be an inevitable and necessary part of it. And your intentions are good. You're not trying to harm or upset people. It's just that the, the truth, like you said, uh, is brutal in its nature, is mm. very shocking. So you're very attracted to this method. How did you make the transition of just being vegan to doing activism work? Uh, well, similar to the process of going vegan, it took me a while to get into activism. Uh, and, and at first I started out, well, I'm against animal cruelty. I don't want to support this industry. So I'm just going to remove myself from the equation and I'm not responsible for what I, anyone else chooses to do. Uh, after a while of doing that, I started to have different thoughts about it. Like, you know, I, I'm a, I'm against racism and child abuse and all these other things that, you know, are obviously wrong and that everyone else is also uh, against. Would I be complacent with someone around me being racist or abusing a child or abusing a dog? Uh, no, I would, I would say something if I, if I saw this happening. So why am I complacent with everyone around me supporting extreme animal cruelty every single day? And after reasoning with that for a little while, I, I thought, obviously, I, I can't be complacent with that. So I have to, I have to do something. And it, it started out, uh, I was watching, like, I kind of got, for, for selfish reasons, addicted to watching these videos of, of like, Joy Carbstrong. Uh, I'm forgetting some of the names, Earthling Ed. Those are the two ones that stick with me. And just because I found it so entertaining to watch 
these, you know, grown uh, adults who are, uh, you know, they have good jobs, they're smart and rational in every other aspect of their life. But as soon as this topic comes up, I found it super entertaining and fascinating to watch them get cornered with these really easy questions and just get exposed as total hypocrites and just watching how they react to that. Uh, so I found that very entertaining. And then eventually, uh, after watching a lot of that and having those thoughts that I can't be complacent with people doing it, I thought I should try to do something myself. And, you know, I should actually try to find a way to outreach people. And then just by chance in one of the videos I was watching, some one of the one of the people who came by to speak to uh, Joey, I think it was, asked how they can get involved. And then he explained it on the video, how to get involved with Anonymous for the Voiceless. And it's like, oh, okay, well, maybe that's it. So I went to the website, found the local chapter and and signed up and, and went uh, that week, I think. And and never looked back. That's amazing. Um, what would be your message for vegans who are listening to this and who want to take action but are still on the fence about it? I'd say think about exactly what what I just said about why, why are you vegan? Uh, are you vegan because you're against animal cruelty? I think that's probably what the majority of, of people go vegan for. And if you're against animal cruelty, are you complacent with other people uh, doing something that you're so passionately against uh, all around you every day, all the time? And if the answer is no, then uh, what, like, how, how could you, how could you uh, justify not speaking up against it? Uh, so in terms of AV, it's it's very uh, low pressure. It's it's an excellent entry point into activism. I would say uh, you show up. There's no pressure to do anything. You can you can sit on the sidelines and just watch and not talk to anybody. You can hold the TV if you want or not. You, some people will just like you know mostly sit on the side and, and watch and and slowly uh, uh, get their feet wet. And other people want to jump into outreach uh, right away, but we have the three-day rule. Um, so uh, if you're looking for something to get into, uh, then Anonymous for the Voiceless is definitely, I would say, the best uh, entry point. And then from there, you'll you'll meet the wider community and, and people who are involved in organizing all sorts of other things. And so you'll you'll find something that, that fits your uh, personality and, and, and something that you're good at. Uh, yeah, that's that's what I would say. I agree. And one obstacle that people uh, name when we talk about volunteering or taking action is, I don't have the time. So uh, how much time do you invest on your activism work? And how do you um, manage, um, create a balance between your personal life, work life, and your volunteering work um it's sometimes a little bit challenging um as a as one of the organizers of the chapter here in montreal uh i i have to be present you know pretty much every single time uh from the start or you know from before the beginning until after the end of the event to to clean everything up and i'd say i put maybe six or seven hours per week into it every Saturday or Sunday usually. And my job is extremely busy. Like I'm a I'm an accountant at a big public company. And so I I work a lot. 
uh, and I'm able to make it work um, because I think it's important. Uh, and so I, I, I feel I, I do my part by facilitating these events uh, for volunteers to come to. And I, I could, you know, sometimes I have more capacity to do something else. And so I'll go volunteer at someone else's event. But kind of at a bare minimum, I put my six or seven hours a week into Anonymous for the Voiceless to facilitate those events. And I, I have all the equipment. So I'm, I'm the person with the car. And so I, I bring all the equipment to and from. Um, and if you join Anonymous for the Voiceless, for example, it's not like you have to come to every single event. Uh, you can choose uh, which ones to come to. You can show up halfway through or for the last hour or for the first half or whatever. So it's very flexible. Uh, so if, if time management uh, is an issue or, or you're too busy, uh, then there's absolutely no downside to joining because it, you only have the option to come uh, when when you're available. For me, giving is something a little bit selfish. Let me explain I get so much from uh, giving money, giving time, giving uh, resources, advice to, to people. You know, it brings me so much, so much meaning, so much pleasure, joy, happiness in my life. So in your case, what does activism work in animal rights bring you? That's yeah, it's an interesting point that you brought up. And I've thought about that before as well, because I, I do get the... Uh, uh, I don't know if I'd call it satisfaction, but it, like uh, maybe alleviation of of some guilt of, about not doing anything about it. So at the end of the day, when you really boil it down, I guess it is kind of like a you know a selfish reason, and you know I can uh, philosophize about that all I want. But you know at the end of the day, regardless of the reason I'm doing it, I think it's good work, and you know the animals don't care what my reasoning is at the end of the day, uh, you know whether or not I get satisfaction from it. Uh, so I'd say that, yeah, it's, it's because I really believe it's, it's extremely important work. Like there's just an unimaginable amount of suffering, like the scale, I think even, uh, like it catches me off guard sometimes. Like, I, like sometimes I'll forget just the scale of it, like the amount of suffering that's happening this very instant to, you know, tens of billions of animals just all the time, every second of every day of every every year uh so yeah i think i think uh i i get i get to satisfy the 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 need that i have to do something about it about something that is such a huge injustice and you mentioned earlier racism and other forms of abuse so many scholars historians anthropologists uh, sociologists have argued that racism and other forms of abuse and war and violence between humans came from our exploitation of animals, that this was the beginning, that what we did to animals and what we are doing to animals is just the first step to then doing it to uh, fellow human beings. So, yeah, it's violence against animals, but also violence against humans. That's why I love the the saying animal liberation is human liberation. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely true. And uh, I, I will often uh, end my conversations. Like after I've had a good conversation with somebody and I, I know they're interested, then I'll end it with kind of the exact point that you're making. Uh, 
like I'll ask them to imagine a world where children aren't taught to discriminate against animals and they aren't taught to accept and be numb to the violence that we cause towards animals. How much better do you think humans would treat each other if they didn't learn to first uh, uh, condone or be uh, complacent with violence towards animals? So let's talk about those conversations you had with people. I'm sure you have plenty of stories of, you talked, you mentioned uh, uh, con confronting people and how sometimes they're upset and, and such. So can you share with us some uh, stories of uh, conversations with people, um, not just the negative ones, but also the good ones, the, the great impact you've made? Uh, I would love to, to hear about that. For sure. Uh, some of the more ridiculous conversations I have seem to revolve around a lot of people thinking that plants feel pain, for example. And until I started doing outreach, it never crossed my mind that anyone would ever, much less like a grown adult, would actually think that plants feel pain. Like there's, there's so many reasons why that's just not the case. But you know, on top of that, it's like even if they did feel pain, uh, well, a vegan a vegan diet or lifestyle causes so many so much less uh, plant life to to be ended, just just through the sheer number of crops that we have to grow and feed the animals. Wait, are you saying this so, is like a common response? Yeah, it's a. I think it's an epidemic. Really? <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy the number of people who think grown adults who really believe to their core that plants are sentient and feel pain. And so, you know, 99% of my conversations are, are pretty rational, even if someone starts with that, uh, with that point, I'll point out that, you know, most crops are grown to feed animals. So, okay, fine. Even if they still believe that plants feel pain, we can agree that less plants are going to die because of that. But some people are just so irrational and they'll stick to it and they won't listen to anything I'm saying. And so then, uh, at that point, they're kind of, they're just so far gone. They're kind of lost. And so I'll focus my energy on trying to get them to admit to something totally insane that hopefully later on they'll, they'll reflect on. And so if someone is so convinced that, uh, you know, their house plants are sentient and feel pain. And so I'll, I'll get them to admit eventually that, uh, okay, I guess. I guess, you know, there's no difference. There's no ethical difference between me, you know, chopping uh, my house plants in half and chopping my cat in half. And, you know, they'll, they'll fully admit it. And then at that point, I'm like, okay, well, it's nice talking to you. And then off they go. You know, there's no, there's no value added in continuing the conversation after that point. And I just hope that they will reflect on how, uh, how insane uh, they sounded and what they said was. So that, that's, I think that sums up the, uh, the the crazy conversations that I have. Um, there have been, uh, in terms of good conversations, th there are some people that we've spoken to uh, who aren't vegan at the time, of course, but the conversation goes very well, and you know they're rational and, and it's uh, you know they're making you know both good points on both sides, and we eventually come to the you know, uh, a good conclusion that okay, we don't need to be abusing animals and and they're going to think about it and and research you know how to go on a vegan diet and then they actually stick to the word and we know because a few months later or you know even maybe up to a year later they'll come back to us 
uh, saying that they went vegan. Uh, they'll just kind of happen upon stumble across us and come talk to us and say, hey, because I spoke to you a few months ago or last year, I thought about this and I actually became vegan and I'm, I've been vegan now for, for months or whatever. And then sometimes somebody will even come back uh, as a volunteer. And so it's, uh, those moments are always nice because first it's nice to, uh, uh, that, that they do that and we get another volunteer, but more so it's, it's nice that, um, it's kind of proof that, that what we're doing is having at least, uh, some impact, like very tangible proof that, that what we're doing made a difference. That is heartwarming to hear. Um, but I have a follow-up question, which is a bit of a tough question. Um, mm -hmm. It is one thing to convince people and for them to become vegan and make that transition. But the problem I don't see many people address is how many vegans and vegetarians decide to return back to their old ways, old diet, old lifestyle, and forget mm -hmm. about uh, veganism and uh, being vegetarian even. So have you thought about this problem and do you have maybe solutions? In terms of solutions, I'm not, I'm not sure what's, what the solution would be other than uh, somehow better education around how to be vegan. Because I, I know that what you're saying is true. I don't know what the exact statistics are about how many people go back, but I know for sure, obviously it does happen. I know somebody who did it. Uh, but I, I think that if people were better educated on nutrition, uh, then it would be less likely to happen because I, I'm speculating that one of the reasons that they do it is probably because they're feeling malnourished or something because they didn't properly uh, adopt a vegan diet. And maybe they, they were eating meat before and they just, they just got rid of the meat, dairy, and eggs, but didn't substitute it with anything. And so obviously they're going to be missing a lot of nutrients. But when you just put some basic time and effort into researching what you need uh, from a nutritional standpoint, it's very easy to get what you need at you know any grocery store to get uh, easy, cheap, uh, plant-based, uh, plant-based food. And, uh, it's also easy and cheap to just get, um, uh, like if you're a little bit unsure about certain things, just buy a multivitamin, which will kind of, you know, bridge, uh, a lot of gaps that you have nothing wrong with, um, a multivitamin. It's, it's perfectly healthy. And lots, lots of people who aren't vegan have multivitamins. Um, and, but for some reason, when, when you introduce the topic of multivitamins in a vegan context, uh, people, We'll, we'll use that. Oh, you need to supplement because you, you know, all, all that, uh, all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, there's nothing wrong with the, with the multivitamin. You're just getting extra nutrients. Uh, yeah. To, to answer your question, I think, I think the solution is just better education. I agree with that. I'm, I'm still thinking about what you said, um, about plants having feelings and how it's a common response. I mean, you made me lose my faith in humanity. Yeah, I mean, people who believe that plants have feelings maybe they should they need guidance in order to uh plan their their diet yeah and i think it's also a blame we should put on some vegans who hesitate to talk about supplements or you know they they, they want to claim that veganism is this uh fountain of youth that of course you don't need uh, b12 supplements of course you don't need multivitamins 
but actually you do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Especially um, B12. And I know there are some other sources of it, but um, I don't, I don't know how you get maybe enough of it from uh, non-multivitamin sources, but uh, you know, luckily we live in a developed world and everyone has easy access to cheap multivitamins. And so it's, it's very easy. And at the end of the day, like if it, if it comes to uh, torturing a sentient animal or taking a multivitamin, what's, what's the rational person going to do? Like, why, why would you choose torturing an animal over just taking a, a perfectly healthy uh, multivitamin? You know, there's no, there's no point in, in, uh, you know, denying the realities of nutrition, but at the end of the day, it is perfectly possible to be completely healthy on, on a vegan diet. And we're busy people. You were talking about how your work takes a big place in your life. I don't want to be anxious about what I'm eating. I want to cover my bases. So multivitamin is a great solution for that. Mm -hmm. um, and to add to the rationale behind leaving the vegan lifestyle, I think that another good reason um, is... Some people start for health reasons. They become vegan for health reasons and they don't really care about animals. And that's something else I like about Anonymous for the Voices because you're making the ethical arguments for being vegan, not the health arguments, not even the environmental argument. Because I think that if you become vegan for the environment or for health reasons, I think chances are you will stop being vegan after a while because it will be too difficult um, yeah. Yeah, on your so social life, on your diet and so on in terms of organizing your diet. So yeah, do you agree with me? A hundred percent. If you don't have that uh, ethical reason to, to keep you focused on it, uh, you're much more likely to, to diverge and maybe fall back onto a, a meat-based diet because it's maybe just because of the world we live in, maybe a little bit easier. Uh, you have to think a little bit less about it, especially if you're going out to restaurants, you know, because it, it's, it's also like perfectly, uh, like a well-balanced meat-based diet is also perfectly healthy. That's just the reality of it. And so somebody who's health-focused isn't going to have a problem being healthy uh, necessarily on, on a meat-based diet if you just purposely choose, uh, you know, healthy, uh, healthy food. Um, so without that moral uh, reasoning behind it, for sure, people are going to be much more likely to uh, to go back to it. Yeah, I mean, my family eats a Mediterranean diet. I'm not going to argue with them that veganism is healthier. I mean, it doesn't make sense. I don't. I don't have the um, the strong uh, position here. Um, so you you spoke about a future in which we which veganism is more prevalent and i always wonder what's the end goal you know what kind of at what point do we say okay we have uh, fulfilled animal liberation is it you know major changes in the law uh, do we make eating meat illegal i, I try to to picture that i'm someone who likes to have it clear idea of where we're going with this with our actions and i understand that it's maybe in, in we won't get there before a century um but i was wondering if 
you had uh, envisioned that future? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think, I think my answer would be uh, when the laws change, when, when um, animal products, at least in the developed world, uh, become illegal, you know, the same way that other forms of animal exploitation and, and torture are illegal, like dog fighting. Um, and, and when the majority of people agree that, yeah, animal cruelty is wrong and I, I couldn't, I, you know, taste pleasure is not a justification for, uh, supporting animal abuse. So it's, it, I agree with you. It's probably like a century away from that point. Uh, although it, it might get accelerated just because of um, climate crisis reasons, like meat might become more heavily taxed. And if, if we get into super extreme situations, maybe become uh, illegal. Uh, but, uh, you know, regardless of the reasons that it happens, uh, I will be happy that it, it does happen. And there's, there's a, I don't know if you call it a, a phenomenon, but a, uh, something that happens when, like, if, if somebody... Uh, is is forced to go vegan for some reason, like like let's say it, it becomes illegal because of uh, uh, climate issues. Uh, when they're no longer uh, contributing to that animal cruelty, they're more likely to reflect on it in a more honest way and look back on it and say, okay, animal exploitation for that, you know, it was obviously totally wrong. You know, now that they're not implicated in it anymore, they're not so defensive about it, and so they'll you know, retroactively look back and. And agree that it's wrong and so even if it becomes illegal for reasons other than ethical i think it would still facilitate um, a, a mental shift in most of or a lot of people at least into uh into adopting that that mindset that we shouldn't be exploiting animals so and, and for it to be uh sustainable i think i think that people need to uh, adopt that mindset that it, that it is wrong otherwise you know let's say we get through the climate crisis and then the government makes it legal again, it'll just go right back to where it was unless unless uh, people's, uh, um, uh, uh, what, do you, what do I call it? Uh, their perception of it has changed. So we need to win the war of ideas. <clears throat> yeah. I, at the end of the day, for long-term uh, sustainable results, I think that's the case. Hmm. Um, I get the sense that you're optimistic about the future. Am I right? <laughs> uh, yes, maybe not in my lifetime, but uh, I'll do my part to push it forward uh, while while I'm here. Uh, but I don't expect to see a, a total overhaul uh, or uh, you know a vegan world necessarily before uh, before I go. Uh, but in the long term, like in the long term for humanity, I, I am optimistic about it. Amazing. So Galen, I think we covered um, most of what I wanted to talk about. Um, did you want to add something before we end this conversation? Um, I think the only thing I would add is to touch again on 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 your points about people on the fence about volunteering. Um, I really encourage people to start volunteering, and because if you know, if you're against animal cruelty and you want to see a world that is kinder towards animals, the only way that that's going to happen is if people like yourselves <clears throat> stand up and, and do something about it. Yeah, I mean, that's just being realistic. It's not even, you know, optimistic, pessimistic. It's just being realistic. 
you need to do something about yeah. it. Whatever your feelings are, if we want to see change, we need to do something to make it happen. Exactly, exactly. It's people are so complacent uh, and you know brainwashed in, into thinking that animal exploitation is totally normal and there's nothing wrong with what we do to animals. So that's not, it's not going to change on its own. It's going to take people to stand up and, and expose it. Amazing. That's a great message to end this conversation. So once again, thank you so much for having been a guest on this podcast. And thank you for your great work. This was a pleasure, uh, Galen. Pleasure's on mine. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope that Galen gave you a good idea of what it's like to volunteer for Anonymous for the Voiceless. If you feel like getting a mask and helping out, I invite you to check the link below and see if there is any Anonymous for the Voiceless chapter in your area. And if there is no group in your city or town, what if you started one? Don't miss next week's episode. It's a very special episode because you know the horrendous footage of animals being tortured that Anonymous uses in their Cube of Truth? Well, we will be investigating how this footage is produced with Natalie, an activist who broke in a pig farm to capture some of the worst images of animal exploitation out there. Subscribe now and don't miss out on her incredible story. And as always, please tell your family and friends about the show and why you love it so much. Finally, you can always follow me on Instagram at Vegan Report Podcast. Thank you again for listening. Take care and see you soon.